on Wednesday nights, we have been working our way through a study called Lessons from the Upper Room. Lessons from the Upper Room. And we've been looking at the uh, teachings of Jesus to his disciples in the upper room on the night before he was crucified. You know that Jesus gathered all his disciples in that upper room and they, um, they had the Lord's Supper together. He instituted the Lord's Supper and he taught them some very specific things before he was betrayed by Judas and arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And these lessons in the upper room, these things he taught them on the night before he was crucified are so poignant and so powerful, and we've just kind of been walking through all that he has to say uh, in this section. Really, if you had to sum up these lessons from the upper room, they are lessons on walking by faith or living the Christian life by faith. Because for three years, the disciples, the 12 disciples who were in the upper room with Jesus, had been living with Jesus, following Jesus by sight. They saw him with their eyes. They heard him with their ears. But Jesus knew he was about to die on the cross. He would be buried. He would rise from the dead. And after some time on the earth, he would ascend to the Father, go back to heaven, and he would no longer physically be present with them on the earth. Now, of course, he would be present with them because he said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. But he would no longer be physically present with them. So they would have to transition to living the Christian life, not by sight, but by faith, which relates to all of us, right? Because we live the Christian life by faith. We don't see Jesus with our eyes. We don't hear Jesus with audible ears. We live the Christian life by faith. So these lessons in living by faith for his disciples are so important for us to grasp. Lessons like the role of the Holy Spirit in our life. We talked about that uh, last week. Uh, and, and tonight, we're going to talk about joy. What joy looks like because... Jesus gives some insight into joy for his disciples because he knew they were about to go through some difficult times and they would need to understand some things about joy if they were going to live the abundant Christian life as they went through the difficult times. And so we're going to learn from what Jesus said to his disciples about joy. We're going to be in John chapter 16. John chapter 16. Look what it says in verse 16. A little while, and you will see me no longer, and again a little while, and you will see me. So some of the disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us, A little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me, and because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, A little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into what? Into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she is sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So, also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice. And no one, watch this, No one will take your joy from you. In that day, you'll ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. And we're going to go down through verses 33, but I'll save that for a little bit later in uh, our time together. 
Jesus here is talking about the all-important principle of joy. These are his last words to his disciples before he would be betrayed and arrested because right after John chapter 16, we see John 17, which is called the high priestly prayer of Christ where Jesus prays for his disciples. And we know the story of the Garden of Gethsemane. He goes off by himself to pray and comes back three times and the disciples are sleeping. And he says, can you not watch with me for one hour? But after this prayer time in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus would be betrayed by Judas, arrested and taken into a mockery of a trial. And then he would be beaten and crucified. And so these are his last words to his disciples. And they center on the topic of the subject of Joy. Now, before we talk about joy, we need to talk about some reasons that joy is hard to come by sometimes, or what causes the opposite of joy in our life, which is heartache. And, and in this text, we see some prevalent causes of heartache, some, some prevalent reasons that the disciples would struggle to find joy, and some prevalent reasons that you and I struggle sometimes to live in joy. And I want to just kind of walk you through these three causes of heartache. This is not an exhaustive list, but these deal with what Jesus was saying to his disciples. First of all, personal loss. Personal loss is a prevalent cause of heartache. Look what it says in verse 16. A little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. Now I believe there in that verse Jesus Christ is talking about his death and his resurrection. Again, a little while, you'll, you'll, know, you'll not see him any longer because he would die on the cross, he would be buried. But again, a little while, early on that Sunday morning, they would see him again. And so in the context of his death, his burial, and his resurrection, he's saying, you are going to experience great loss. When you see me crucified, when you know that I have died on the cross, when you know that I have been buried, and all of your hopes and all of your dreams related to the Messiah have been crushed, and you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, and you are hopeless, and you are desperate, you're going to experience great loss. Great loss. And he knew they would struggle with joy because of that sense of personal loss. And when you and I lose something, when we lose a loved one or, or lose a job or lose our health or lose our hope or whatever the case may be, we experience that personal loss that can absolutely take away our joy. I mean, just before I came up to teach tonight, I got two pieces of very troubling news about people going through difficult times in our family of faith. And, and you hear that kind of stuff all the time and, and things that families are walking through and dealing with. Actually, three pieces of troubling news. You, all, the, all the difficult things that families are walking through, just people I love in our family of faith and, and people are just hurting because life is hard. And when we understand how hard life is, it can, it can just suck your joy away, can it? Personal loss. And so Jesus knew that they would struggle with joy in the face of personal loss. Another prevalent cause for heartache, and this is relevant, is the world's attitude toward Christ. The world's attitude toward Christ. Look what Jesus says in verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. Weep and lament. Uh, That word uh, lament That's the only time we find this word in the book of John. And the word weep is used other times in the book of John. But both these words are used in the context of a funeral. 
when you see the word weep being used in other places in John, it's related, related to the death of a loved one. So he says, when you will weep and lament, he's talking of losing a loved one to death. And so he's speaking there of, of I believe, his death and the, 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 how it would cause his disciples to be distraught in the face of losing Jesus to death. But look what he says next. You will weep and lament, but the world will what? Rejoice. Why would the world rejoice? Because the world, the system of ungodliness that is marshaled against God, wanted Jesus off the scene. They wanted to stop the the advance of, of, of the teachings and the works and the person of Christ. And so among the religious leaders, among the political leaders, there would be joy. We're we're through with Jesus. We took care of him. We took care of that rabble rouser, right? And, and he's speaking here of the, the direct opposition against himself. He's speaking here of the direct opposition against Christ. And the disciples who loved Jesus would have to, have to live in the midst of all of this enmity toward their teacher, their master, their Lord, their friend, their Savior. They would have to experience the, the, the forces of the world uh, at enmity with Christ, and it would be difficult for them to walk through. And we can relate to that, can't we? We can relate to how it feels when we have been saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. We rejoice in the cross and the empty tomb. We rejoice that Jesus Christ intersected our life and, and, and pulled us out of the pit and saved us and put our feet on level ground and, 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 and forgave us by his amazing grace. We're so grateful for Jesus. He's our friend. He's our Lord. He's our Savior. He's our hope. We long to see him again. And yet we see so many around us that are that are at enmity with Christ. They, they hate Christ and everything related to Christ. And because they hate Christ, they hate followers of Christ. And they want to stop any mention of Christ in, in society today. And because there are so many enemies toward Christ, that there's this, this attitude of hostility towards Christ, it can steal our joy. When we understand that it's hard to be a Christian, it can steal our joy, can it? When, and, and in the coming days, as we come to understand that there's going to be a price for following Christ in, in America, it's going to cost us something. It's going to steal our joy if we're not careful. And, and Jesus knew the disciples were about to experience this. You are going to see the evil and hatred of the world poured out, Jesus knew, upon himself. And so that can be a prevalent cause of heartache. Here's a third prevalent cause of heartache. Personal loss, the world's attitude towards Christ. But, but third, our weaknesses and failures. Fast forward to the end of the passage. Look what it says in John 16. Look in verse 20, 25. Well, actually, look at verse Verse 29. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and are not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. So they're saying, Hey, we're with you, Jesus. We understand what you're saying now. You're speaking in plain language. We're with you. We're going to follow you. We believe in you. We got your back, Jesus. That's what they're saying. And, And look what Jesus says in verse 31. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered. 
each to his own home, and will leave me, what? Alone. Yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. And so Jesus is saying, yeah, you're talking a good game, guys. You, you got my back. You, you believe in me, right? But you need to understand that very soon, when the going gets tough, you're going to go home. You're going to flee for your life, and you're going to scatter, and you're going to leave me all alone to face the, the darkness of taking on the sins of the world and, and dying in the place of sinners. Jesus went through that alone because the disciples scattered. They left him. They were weak. They were scared. They were frail, and they stumbled and fell. And sometimes when we find that we're struggling to make progress in the Christian life. Anybody ever been there, struggling to make progress in the Christian life? Sometimes when we find we're struggling to make progress in the Christian life, or we just flat out just blow it, it can steal your joy, can it? As we consider our own weakness and our own failures, and, you know, what we want to do, like Paul says in Romans 7, we don't do what we don't want to do, we do, and there's this battle on the inside between the new us and the old us and the, the spirit and the flesh, and, and, and it can be downright disappointing sometimes when you, when you know the truth and you want to follow Jesus and make a difference, but you just, you just fall flat on your face. And the disciples were about to experience that, the failure. As a matter of fact, the Bible says after Peter denied Jesus Christ three times, he went away and he wept. He wept over his failure. And so life is hard. The Christian life is hard. And all of these things can steal us or steal our joy. So here's the question. How can we, in light of all these things, personal loss, tragedy, hardship, uh, enemies of the cross, our own weakness, in light of all these things that we all encounter and deal with, how can we live with a consistent, deep, real, abiding joy? How in the world, after I just went through all that, how in the world can we have joy in the midst of all that? Good question, right? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because Jesus tells us. That's what this passage is about. He tells them how they can have joy in the midst of all that. Look at that. All the way at the back. They've still found the back row. Look at that. Hey, back row folks. There's seats here at the front row. All right. If you don't have a back row, they make a back row. I like that. All right. There's still balcony space, guys. If y'all want to get up in the... All right. All right, so what is, the, what, is the, uh, what is the pathway to joy? What is the pathway to joy? What does Jesus tell them that can help them to experience this, this joy that he wants us to live in? And hey, make no mistake about it. God wants you to experience joy. Did you hear what I just said? God wants us to live with joy. Why? But for our own personal well-being, our emotional well-being, our spiritual well-being, and because joy is attractive to a lost and dying world, right? When people see you living with joy that they don't have and your joy is, is consistent and abiding, they, they may begin to think, boy, I'd like to have what they have. Joy is appealing. It's attractive. So how can we live with joy? Well, Jesus gives us this pathway to joy in our text. I'm going to give you three thoughts, and then we, we'll be through. And let's say it's three points. If I take five minutes a point, we'll be done in 15 minutes, right? Right, Frank? Frank, <laughs> Frank said the other day, I've never taken, uh, I've never gone five minutes on a point. So, 
So the pathway to joy. Number one, there is joy in knowing that God will transform our troubles. There's joy in knowing that God will transform our troubles. Very interesting what Jesus says to the disciples here. Look what he says in verse 16. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. They're, they're really troubled by this phrase, a little while. What's he talking about? What's the timeline here is what they want to know. What's he mean? Because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me? And again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. There are those two words, weep and lament. I believe in, in light of his death. You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. You'll be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Now listen, this is so important for us to understand. Joy is not an absence of trouble. Joy is not absence of trouble. If you're waiting for a trouble-free life to have your joy, you're going to wait your entire life and be without joy. Because Jesus said, in this world, you're going to have trouble, right? And so if you're waiting for all your troubles to go away and then you'll be joyful, you'll never get there. Joy is not an absence of trouble. That's not what it is. And so what is it? What is joy? Joy comes from knowing that God is at work in the midst of the trouble and will bring it to a good conclusion. Look what he says in verse 21. When a woman is giving birth, he uses a a metaphor here, picture, illustration. When a woman is giving birth, she is sorry because her hour has come. There's pain in childbirth. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So Jesus here does not not negate the the reality of pain, does he? When a woman gives birth to a child, there's there's pain. That's a reality. It's it's part of giving uh, birth to a child. But At the end of the process, there is the joy of having a child. And so joy comes from knowing that even in the midst of the pain and the trouble, God is at work and will bring it to a good conclusion. I love what James Montgomery Boyce says about this passage. He writes, The disciples experienced acute sorrow because of their loss, the joy of the world and disappointments. But then came the resurrection. And their sorrow was changed into joy. It was not that their sorrow was followed by joy, that joy came afterward, but what was sorrow still remained. No, the sorrow was itself changed into joy, so that what had been the cause of their sorrow before was now in equal measure joyous. Before the resurrection, before the, resurrection the death of Christ appeared to be a total tragedy. It was meaningless to the disciples because they did not understand that this was God's atonement for the sin of the world. It was only the death of one they deeply loved. But when Jesus rose from the dead, they understood that the cross was not a tragedy, but a triumph. And so here's what Boyce is saying. Even though they experienced great sorrow, real sorrow, when Jesus died on the cross... God took the tragedy of the cross and turned it into a triumph that they understood when Jesus rose from the dead. And guess what? That's what God does in a smaller scale in all of our lives. He takes even the difficult things 
and turns them into something good. So wait, is that in the Bible? Romans 8.28, right? God works everything that's good, bad, uh, wonderful, hard, uh, great, difficult, uh, joyous, painful. He takes everything and works them together for good to those that love him, those called according. That's what God does. And of course, the ultimate illustration is Joseph, right, in the, the Old Testament. Joseph is, is, is sold into slavery by his brothers. He's thrown into jail on a false charge, and it just looks hopeless and bleak, and he's going through great sorrow. But God had a purpose for his pain, right? And God used it to elevate him to the place of power in Egypt so that he could one day save his family, preserve Israel, and send a Messiah through the Jewish people. And so God used his pain. didn't just take it away. He used it and transformed it into something that is ultimately good. That's what God does. And only God can, can do that. So when we are experiencing pain, remember joy is not an absence of pain. It's not an absence of hardship. When we are experiencing pain and hardship, we can know, based upon the truth of God's word, God is somehow going to use this. God somehow has a plan for this. And if you know that, and you believe that, and you walk in that, even though life is difficult, you can have joy. You can have joy. And that's not a joy you can take away, because the joy is not contingent upon your circumstance, right? Your joy is based upon what you know God is doing in the circumstance, what God is doing through your trials. And so, There's joy knowing that God will transform our troubles. And and that final blank under number one, this kind of joy is deep and abiding because it's not contingent on circumstances. Verse 22, look what Jesus says. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. I love that. When you see how God transformed your troubles, you will have joy that no one can take away. That's important because folks tried to take away their joy, right? The disciples were thrown into jail. They were beaten. Peter was crucified upside down. Uh, John was put in uh, Patmos in exile. I mean, we go on and on, all the hardships that the disciples experienced. But he said, you're going to have a joy from knowing that God is at work in your troubles that no one will be able to take away. If you believe that God is sovereign, if you believe that God's in control, and you believe that God is good, he's good, isn't he? If you cling to those two realities, you will be able to to experience a joy that can never be taken away by people or circumstances. That's appealing, isn't it? Don't you want that? A joy that can't be taken away by people or circumstances. It comes from understanding that God steps in the midst of your troubles and transforms them for your good and for his glory. So that's the first pathway to joy. The second one is this. There's joy in knowing that God is our Father. There's joy in knowing that God is our Father. Look what it says in verse 23. Jesus says, in that day you will ask nothing of me. Now, here he's speaking of the time when Jesus Christ would no longer uh, be on the earth. He'd ascend to the Father. He's talking about his, his, their, their walk by faith, not by sight. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name, asking you will receive that your joy may be full. And so he wanted them to understand that 
even though Jesus would no longer physically be present with them on the earth, they could go to God their Father. So when we understand that God is our Father, two things happen. Number one, we will go to Him continually in prayer. We'll go to Him continually in prayer. I think it's interesting there what He says in verse 23. In that day when you're walking by faith, not by sight, you're going to, to ask the Father in my name. He'll give it to you. He'll answer your prayers. Verse 24, until now you've asked nothing in my name. In other words, the disciples weren't praying to the Father in Jesus' name. They were just asking Jesus, right? He was there on the earth with them. But when he was in heaven with the Father, their prayer life would change. And instead of just talking to Jesus about their needs, they would pray to the Father in the name of Jesus, who made a a relationship with God available. It's speaking here of prayer life. And so when we understand that God is our Father, we will go to Him continually in prayer. There's a, there's a direct correlation between prayer and joy. Because prayer is based upon your dependence upon the Father. And, and when you're dependent upon the Father and you pray, you will have a joy that abides. Also, when we understand that God is our Father, we will rest in the Father's love. We will rest in the Father's love. Look what Jesus says in verse 25. I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. In other words, you're going to have a wonderful relationship with the Father because He loves you. He's going to take care of you. You'll pray to Him in my name, but understand He's going to answer your prayers. He loves you and will take care of you. And so when we understand that God is our Father, we will rest in our Father's love. I like what Warren Wearsby writes. He writes, Jesus assured them that a day would soon come when they would not ask him questions. Instead, they would pray to the Father and he would meet their needs. This was the promise that they desperately needed to believe, that the Father loved them and would hear their requests and meet their needs. While Jesus was on earth, he met all the needs of his disciples. Now he would return to the Father, but the Father would meet their needs. There's a fundamental shift. They were now walking by faith. And they need to understand that they need to go to the Father in Jesus' name to receive what they needed. And if you and I will have that perspective that God is our Father, that He takes care of us, that He answers our prayers, that He is there for us, that He watches over us, that He cares for us, then we can have a joy, again, that cannot be taken away by circumstances. There's joy in knowing that God is our Father, it's like a, it's like a, a child that hears the thunder outside, and and there's a there's a, a violent thunder. The wind's blowing and the lightning's striking, and there's thunder. And the child climbs up in their father's lap. They know that even though there's a storm outside, their father is taking care of them. Their father is with them. They can rest in their father's love. Their father will watch over them. Their father will protect them. Their father will give them what they need. That's the picture here in this text. Jesus wants us to understand that to live the life, uh, uh, the Christian life by faith, we need to understand that God is our Father. But there's a third pathway to joy. Let me share this with you and, and we'll wind up. There's joy in knowing that we are on the winning team. 
There's joy in knowing that we are on the winning team. Look what Jesus says in verse 33. I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. The last words he speaks to them before he prays the high priestly prayer in John 17. Now here's what we learn from this. In the midst of tribulation, perspective is critical. In the midst of tribulation, perspective is critical. So he says there, you're going to have tribulation, but take heart. Take heart. In other words, their understanding of the spiritual realities, even in the midst of trouble, would give them joy. So in the midst of tribulation, perspective is critical. It's easy, isn't it, to take your eyes off of God and put them on your circumstances, right? And I heard a a pastor say this one time. I thought it was very, very helpful and very memorable statement. He said, instead of telling God how big your problems are, tell your problems how big your God is. In other words, maintain perspective in the midst of your troubles, in the midst of your hardship. But there's another thought here. Our hope in the midst of hardship, in the midst of trial, tribulation, our hope is not in our ability, strength, or resolve. Our hope is in the victory that Jesus won. Because he says there in verse 33, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Not, hey, take heart, you're going to do great. You're going to overcome the world. He's no, take heart, I have overcome the world. So our hope is, is in the fact that Jesus Christ has won the victory. How did Jesus Christ win the victory? When Jesus Christ went to the cross and took all of our sins on himself and died in our place, dying for the sins of the world, he defeated sin, right? Now, if anyone from any language, tribe, ethnicity, background, people group, if anyone places their faith in Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, his shed blood on the cross will be applied to their account and their sins will be washed away. It happened for me when I was nine years old. Praise the Lord. I'm grateful for forgiveness, aren't you? And when Jesus died on the cross, he defeated sin. He won the victory. And then when he rose from the grave, he defeated the last enemy, which is death. And so death is not the end for us. Death is simply a a transition into eternity because Jesus is alive. He can give us eternal life in heaven. Oh, oh, grave, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And so Jesus Christ won the victory by dying on the cross and rising from the dead. I like what D.A. Carson says. Jesus' point is that by his death, he has made the world's opposition pointless and beggarly. There's a good word we don't use much anymore, beggarly. I like that. I'm going to start using that more in just common, ordinary speech. All right? Jesus' point is that by his death, he has made the world's opposition pointless and beggarly. The decisive battle has been waged and won. The world continues its wretched attacks, but those who are in Christ share the victory he has won. They cannot be harmed by the world's evil, and they know who triumphs in the end. For this they take heart and begin to share his peace. And so when we encounter hardship, we need to maintain that perspective. Listen, that if we are in Christ, we are, we are on the winning team, right? When the dust settles, I said this Sunday, when the dust settles, Jesus wins, right? 
Jesus wins. And when the dust settles, you want to be on his side. You want to be on his side. And so we need to have that perspective going through hardship. There's joy in knowing that we are on the winning team. And so life is hard. Life is difficult. Life happens. We experience personal loss. We experience persecution from enemies of the cross. We experience ridicule from those who hate our Lord and Savior. We experience our own weakness and failures and frailties. And yet, Jesus tells us here how to live with joy. How to live with joy. Understand that he will transform our troubles and use them for good. Understand that he's our father that will give us what we need. He loves us. We can rest in his love and understand that we are on the winning team. He has overcome the world. And to kind of drive that point home, I want to read to you Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. One of the great passages in all the Bible. Familiar words here. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how would he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's really good news, isn't it? We are on the winning team. Jesus Christ has won the victory. Keep that perspective, and you can have joy that is contagious and appealing and fulfilling in your life.